Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And what is this? It's... it's is this a microphone I see before me? It's episode 100! It, yeah, it Yay! is. How the hell did we get here? Well, by doing 99 beforehand, that's generally how it happened. Well, well, actually, technically, we did 101 beforehand because we did two specials as well. So is this really episode... Oh, Oh, yeah. Don't think it's spoiling it, (laughs) Dawood. So this episode, we're going to be talking about the appeal of H.P. Lovecraft. But before we get into all that stuff, what's going on? Well, timely enough, we have... Issue two of the Blasphemous Tome, back from the printer now, well, at least the proof copy anyway. So we should be sending those out any day now to uh, our Patreon backers. Excellent. Yeah, I'm very impressed with just how shit you've managed to make it look, Matt. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, very, uh, very, very early 1980s. <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking, yeah, I've got a nice proportion on various columns. Yeah, nice, nice text size fits everything. And then shittification happens. Yeah, yeah. this is the process whereby Matt using the latest technology, manages to make it look as if it was actually literally cut and pasted with, uh, you know, Pritt stick and scissors in the early 1980s. Yes, by someone who doesn't know what a right angle is. (laughs) Yeah, because there are very few of them in there. (laughs) On on the bright side, it's one of the few zines around where the layout won't attract a hand of Tindalos. Ah, there is that. (laughs) And also exciting stuff, we've got tickets booked to go out into uh, Necronomicon in Providence, Rhode Island in August this year. Yes, we'll be there to celebrate Mr Lovecraft's birthday in the middle of August. First time back out to the States for a couple of years now. For for 18 years for me. Wow. And we hope to record uh, a show out there. And yeah, we've got a few plans of things that we might do either for the podcast or for the blog. Yes, we've been talking to our friends at the Miskatonic University podcast about possibly doing a uh, seminar with them. If we can get that to come together, we shall record it. And run a few games in between as well. Mm. And this week I had the pleasure of playing in your game of cult, Matt, the the new version that has been recently kickstarted. Yeah, uh, well, thinking about it, it's last last year now. It's uh, Divinity Lost, uh, fourth edition of cult, that uses the Apocalypse World mechanics. For me, because I've not—I think I may have said a few times before—not much of a fan of Apocalypse World, but I like what they've done with Cult. That it's definitely a good a good fit for the game. Actually, Matt, you know what? There was no combat. I know it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Uh, we didn't really. Do, well, we had a fairly short session, didn't we? Because we had um, at the get local games club, we mm. vote for what games people are going to play in the next uh, eight-week block. So the game was somewhat shortened, but we had a good couple of hours, and mm. we kind of got into the characters that you had created and started off playing the scenario. But yeah, I hadn't actually clocked that no combat took place. But I'll make sure that changes next session. I'll give give it time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we have a special guest later in the episode. We have the creator of Call of Cthulhu himself, Sandy Peterson. And Sandy will be letting us know what, at least for him, is the appeal of Lovecraft. So that brings us on to your favourite segment of the show then, Scott. So what is it? You know, this is a special episode. I'm going to indulge myself. It is the Lovecraftian word of the fortnight. (laughs) Fuck alliteration. (laughs) Fuck it right in the ear. (laughs) Obsidious, 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 obsidious
And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. So what is the uh, most appropriate word that Scott has found for us on episode 100, Matt? Well, they are normally pretty appropriate. This one fits in the same vein. It is centuried. An adjective. One, existing for an indefinite number of centuries. Two, very old. Ancient. Like about half of my vocabulary, this is a word that I learnt by reading Lovecraft. I don't Everything think I knew I learnt from Lovecraft. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd ever encountered it in any other written form before seeing it in, in his work. And yeah, he, he used it an awful lot. It turns up, well, uh, not as much as some of the other words we've talked about recently, but you know, for an un, such an unusual word, it's, it's a fairly common one for him. He uses it 13 times in his fiction. Lucky for some. <laughs> And as we'll discover in the episode, he was a man obsessed with the 18th century and all things to do with that. Uh, and he kind of tried to immerse himself in that and live like an 18th century gentleman. So, I don't know, does that have a bearing on this word? He's kind of... Possibly. I mean, at the very least, it's a very Lovecraftian way of just saying old. Yeah. I mean, most normal people might find a slightly grander way of saying old, but usually just say old. But no, Lovecraft... For him, something isn't old or ancient or uh, antiquated or, or anything like that. It's, it's centuried. I like antediluvian. That's a good old word. I think yes. we had antediluvian in mm-hmm. a previous episode. We did. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From Herbert West, Reanimator. I was with him when he studied the nitrous dripping walls laid bare by the spades and mattocks of the men, and was prepared for the gruesome thrill which would attend the uncovering of centuried grave secrets. But for the first time, West's new timidity conquered his natural curiosity, and he betrayed his degenerating fibre by ordering the masonry left intact and plastered over. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward... A hideous traffic was going on among these nightmare ghouls, whereby illustrious bones were bartered with the calm calculativeness of schoolboys swapping books. And from what was extorted from this century dust, there was anticipated a power and a wisdom beyond anything which the cosmos had ever seen concentrated in one man or group. And from The Hound... For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp ensanguined fangs, yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. Now we move on to our main topic, the appeal of Lovecraft. So in this show, we're going to discuss what it is that we find appealing about the man himself, H.P. Lovecraft, if indeed we do find appeal in him, but also the appeal, the general appeal of his work to us and what it means to us. 
As well as trying to pin these things down, we're also cognizant of the fact that Lovecraft has become something of a controversial figure in recent years. And we will, you know, go into some of the reasons why people might not be a fan of Lovecraft and his work and, you know, at the very least acknowledge these, you know, whether or not we, we share these views ourselves. And we'll wrap up with a look at Lovecraft and gaming. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born in 1890. He died in 1937 a fairly obscure writer who had various works published in pulp magazines like Weird Tales and so on, and could largely have been forgotten, I guess. But 80 years on from his death, now, today, he is, it seems increasingly well-known. Yeah, I, I don't know that you could still exactly call him a household name, but in terms of his influence on popular culture, uh, horror fiction, gaming, uh, cinema, it's it's hard to think of a horror writer who's probably had more influence. I mean, maybe Bram Stoker and Dracula, but, you know, Lovecraft's up there. He was born to quite a well-to-do family in Providence, Rhode Island, but the well-to-do aspect of them was on the decline. His father died when he was of quite a young age. His mother then died when he was about 20, 21. His upbringing was kind of overshadowed by those events. He seems to be, reading about him, he seems to be something of, perhaps a child prodigy is, is to overstate the matter, but he seems to be very well versed in the classics and doing translations of Latin works and so on at quite a young age, I mean like nine or ten. Um, he seems to be very gifted in those aspects. But when it comes to his schooling, he seems to struggle in certain areas. And indeed, I think the events of his loss of his father and so on lead to what is described as a nervous breakdown, a, a few episodes of that, which led to him, his schooling kind of failing and um, him not going on to university or yeah, and this persisted into his 20s. I mean, he came out of it briefly, I think, during his teen years and early early 20s, and then spent much of his 20s in a, you know, a decline as well, where he withdrew from the world, you know, stayed in his house, didn't have contact with people, didn't well, write. Well, I think, I think perhaps that's overstated, Scott, because th there is that perception that he just was a hermit and didn't go out. But at the moment, I'm reading uh, the, the leading H.P. Lovecraft scholar, S.T. Joshi and his book uh, Lovecraft A Life and it really is surprising how much interaction Lovecraft had with a, a, a wide circle of peers who also wrote for amateur press publications so he, Lovecraft even from a very early age I mean like early teenage or, or maybe 10 11 was was writing i think what were just small pamphlets to a, a very you know small circulation but he would use the the technology of the day to to reel off these little pamphlets at quite cheap prices it very much feels to me like if he were around today he'd be actively doing blogs and and, and so on and, and involved in forums and, and discussions online because he was he seemed very motivated to to do that and then that led him on to there, there seemed to be a plethora of at academic journalism journals and publications around at the time that he became uh, involved in and umbrella bodies that, that brought all those authors together and they held conferences and so on and Lovecraft was very active in meeting with those people and corresponding with them 
And he wrote about quite a, a breadth of subjects as well. I mean, he seemed to be particularly interested in the sciences, in, in astronomy and chemistry, if I remember correctly, particularly, as well as politics, and, and wrote a number of political articles. Yeah, very much into science, and wrote what one might term textbooks about chemistry, and um, a lot of advice and guidance to other people, a lot of criticism of other people's work in poetry, and also very active in, in writing his own poetry. Yeah, I, I've certainly got the collected edition of his poetry, uh, The Ancient Tract. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's quite a chunky volume. He seems to have been something of a hypochondriac, one might say. He seems to have been... This seems to have been impressed upon him, perhaps by his mother. There are, there are various quotes and so on from his mother of describing his ill looks and his nervous disposition and his poor health. He was around the age of 24 when the, the, the First World War began, and he did undergo a medical to see if he could sign up for that. But it's not quite clear on what he, he failed it on, but he wasn't past um, fit for, for service. Um, and this was really, I think, no surprise to him. But I think he was very much in support of the war, but didn't actually feel able to participate himself. So I think he was a little bit conflicted about that. But it was shortly after that time that he started writing the weird fiction that we remember him for. That really sort of started kicking in, I guess, with the publication of things like Dagon and The Outsider. So we're, we're looking at you know, 1919 you know, onwards. I mean, what's interesting to me is, is those stories that we remember him for is probably a very small part of his total output as a writer. As we've discussed, there was the amateur journalism and the scientific texts. But of course, what dwarfed all of that was his correspondence. Yeah, reputedly around 100,000 letters. And we're not talking brief email type no. notes here. No, we're, we're talking, talking yeah, each letter being yeah, yeah. voluminous text that he would, would send um, to various people. Yeah. Well, they were released in many different volumes, weren't well, they? Well, a sample yeah. of them. Yeah. I mean, there's an Arkham House collection of five volumes, and then there's um, a twin volume of his correspondence with Robert E. Howard, and oh, there are various yeah. other volumes of his correspondence. Yeah, there are, there are plenty of books of his selected letters, you know, particularly with certain correspondence that have come out. I mean, one of the problems is that you know, an awful lot of his letters have been lost. But even though there are all these books in them, they represent, I, I don't know, maybe a quarter or a fifth of, of what he actually wrote. In the 1920s, at the age of, you know, in his, in his early to mid-30s, Lovecraft gets married, uh, which is... Kind of surprising when one mm. looks back at his life. He seemed to be uncomfortable in writing or discussing anything of a sexual nature and seemed to actively shun that. Well, no, not, not just that. I'd say, you know, it's emotional uh, disengagement as well. One thing that you know, I think we've commented on quite a lot in previous episodes when discussing his stories is that it's very rare to find any kind of emotional content in them. From, from his correspondence and from accounts we've had of people meeting with him, it sounds like he could actually be quite a warm, gregarious person. But it's very easy to get the impression from what he wrote of him being something of a cold fish. Yeah, I think that's the, the mistake that is easy to make. Yeah, I, I get the impression that he could be quite a lot of fun. Mm. 
Yeah, especially, I remember, I remember seeing at one point there was only one photograph ever taken of him where he was smiling. Mm, it does look rather strange. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting. There was a thread on, I, I think, on, on Reddit and Facebook and a few other places recently where someone had posted pictures of Lovecraft and sort of said, why does it always look like he's hiding a bird in his mouth? And he thought he got this slightly pursed-lipped look to him, uh, jaw slightly distended. And I... I, I can't remember who it was. Someone posted the theory that, that you know, he adopted that expression basically because he was ashamed of his bad teeth and was trying to hide them. So in the mid-1920s, he's married and living in New York. But the marriage is somewhat short-lived, um, of a duration of just two or three years. And following that, he moves back to Providence, uh, the place that he you know, really loved all along. His fate is somewhat in decline. He's not a well-off man. The inheritance that he took is fast dwindling and he has a couple of aunts who he is kind of feeling responsible for supporting and his earnings from writing are extremely meagre. Yeah, I, as well as writing the, the weird fiction that he sold to magazines. The other thing, of course, that he did was act as uh, to, to revise other people's work and, and probably in most cases actually just plain ghostwriting. That people would come to him with ideas and say, you know, can you write this story for me? Such as I, Harry Houdini. Yes. Yeah, that, that was his most famous you know, collaborator or uh, yeah, certainly the most famous ghost-written bit that he did. But he did this for you know, a, a fair number of, of collaborators. Arkham House ended up putting out a collection of them, The Horror in the Museum and Other Tales, which collects you know, a fair number of them. As well as helping people through this, you know, this work as a revisionist, his correspondence provided this network uh, amongst weird fiction writers uh, of his time that I mean there were his peers like Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith who he encouraged and they shared ideas and uh, they were cross-pollinated with each other and you know built into something greater as a result and there were the younger writers who came to him you know out of fandom or for advice it might be you know overstating it to say that he was a mentor to them but again you know he was encouraging and uh, you know shared ideas with them and 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 treated them you know as equals and th- this this encouraged uh, writers like um, Robert Block uh, and Fritz Lieber Frank Belknap Long, famously, who ended up writing a biography of Lovecraft, and and August Ehrlich, uh, who you know would later return the favour by preserving Lovecraft's legacy. And then in 1937, at the age of 46, Lovecraft succumbed to cancer of the small intestine and passed away. He's now buried in Swan Point Cemetery in Providence with the epitaph on his gravestone, "I am Providence." I've read. Certainly theories that his lack of attention to his health in his later years certainly probably led to his decline, if not maybe the the, uh, the actual source of his cancer, that he spent, um, you know, because he was trying to save money on food, mm. he spent a lot of time basically living on tins and beans of, uh, and, and crackers and, and you know, skipping meals completely. During the last week or so, I think he was in hospital for something like a week or ten days before he actually died that he actually wrote quite a lot on his deathbed about his experiences in the hospital and his thoughts about death and dying. Supposedly, you know, the the nurse who was looking after him, you know, took all this stuff at the end, tidied it up and just threw it all away. 
which mm. yeah I, I i i if that stuff exists in any form or is ever found i would love to read it but i i believe it is completely lost and as st joshi is uh keen to point out numerous times his great regret similar to what you just stated scott sonia green uh, lovecraft's wife after their breakup took all of lovecraft's letters which she had in a massive trunk out to a field and burnt them he apparently wrote you know reams of letters to her which you know could have been very interesting because they would have revealed perhaps another side to him uh, one can mm. only guess but um yeah i think we we can yeah the the chance of any of that turning up seems uh extraordinarily unlikely i don't know i'd, I'd feel like i was intruding somewhat by reading those letters st joshi would beg to differ i assure you numerous yes. times he's like <laughs> And we'd only know this if only she hadn't destroyed the letters. You can hear him <laughs> screaming on every other page. Does he write those in all caps? Yeah, yeah, it, with with ten exclamation marks. It's the Joshi Khan. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And now we discuss what about Lovecraft and his work appeals to us. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Lovecraft's work is unique. There's something about Lovecraft's work that really stands out. But what is it? He's taken elements from other writers, but he's formed it into his own blend. And I think, for me, it's the fact that he has a very scientific rationalist approach to horror. So we don't have the, the vampires and werewolves and so on of the the standard kind of traditional horror tropes this is something completely different well we got the occasional early story where there are bits of the classic gothic and ghost story in there but this is something that he abandons fairly early on in his career it's also one of the few instances or one of the earliest influences rather i should say of a writer that's developed a world that doesn't centre around a single protagonist to have links between them. Thinking of Conan Doyle, lots of the Sherlock Holmes stories, they're Mm. all linked by the same two characters. But whereas with Lovecraft, you can see links to Mm. stories between them, developing this shared world that doesn't focus on just the exploits of just one person, like the central hero running around between them. It is the first instance someone has done a big world, or in this case, universe-building model. Yeah, I think he is a world builder. And I think there's an appeal to authors that, that do that, that create a world. Much as we see with Tolkien, there's a, there's a wealth of stuff behind Lord of the Rings that, well, has been published since his death, but it's a very rich environment. And the same with J.K. Rowling, who did Harry Potter. I mean, there's, there's a wealth of character backgrounds that she worked on that, that don't actually see print in the books. So I think with Lovecraft, there's perhaps not that, but there's there's a cohesion between the the various stories, but it's mm. not entirely cohesive. No, it isn't. I need he. I, I'd say rather than classic world building, I mean he creates a thematic links between stories certainly shared elements he's creating a a form of cosmology it's certainly a very different approach to world building than you'd you'd see in something like tolkien you know tolkien has has created these vast rich histories he's created languages and with, with lovecraft I mean, there are elements of that. I mean, you know, certainly you've got, you know, bits of history that you see in, in stories like at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, no, as I was saying, it occurred to me that it's actually not like Tolkien in that respect. But 
I think these things have developed and this kind of world building is going on, but it's more of a reflection of his take on the world, really. Mm. Yes. Which is quite one, some might say, quite a bleak take. His approach that there is no God, there is, you know, religions are irrelevant, that mankind is just here for a short time on the planet and then will be gone and doesn't really have any greater cosmic bearing than that, that, you know, science is science. And, I, I, and, and that, you know, everything is fundamentally insignificant on a cosmic scale. And that is communicated through many of his stories. Mm. I, it's interesting how rarely he comes out and says that explicitly, but it, it, it certainly underlines the philosophy mm. of, of, you know, certainly almost all his later work. Yeah, I think there's probably one of the most explicit lines is from actually from The Call of Cthulhu, mm. where it says, we are cast adrift on black seas of infinity and it was not meant that we should journey very far. So there are a lot of different aspects to Lovecraft's writings. What would you say most kind of captures your imagination within those, Matt? Which would you favour? As, as I mentioned previously, that the, the stories have links between them, that it is like a massive jigsaw puzzle. And it's finding those links between them and slowly starting to reveal the kind of the shape of the cosmos that he's put um, built together. And then filling the gaps with my own stuff or my own imagination, thinking, well, what could go in that gap there? What could go over here? Yeah. How could you mm. rearrange the pattern so it looks like something a little different if you put this piece over here and, and so on? But it, it's, a, it's, it's a big puzzle waiting yeah, to be, you love a, waiting uh, to be put uh, together. Matt, the, Matt, the problem solver, the yes. puzzle solver. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, if we ever form like a secret society, you'll be our cryptographer, Matt, for definite. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what but, I mean, if ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's something that um, has appealed to a great many writers, you know, from Lovecraft's lifetime onwards. And it's why so many writers are drawn to, to you know, playing in, in this world that he created, that he created such strong themes and images and ideas, but then left lots of empty space between them uh, and was more than happy to let other people go there and play, play in his, his little you know, dark playground. Even at the time of his death, there were other writers writing in what became known as the Cthulhu mythos, can we think of many other writers that have this? Uh, this is something I was thinking of. I mean, th there are certainly you know any number of writers where people have written fanfic or uh, you know or loose sequels. I, I I suppose the closest would be something like Sherlock Holmes, where particularly now it's out of copyright. People have um, have written all yeah. sorts of extensions to the stories, and, you and know, I guess there are people writing you know Star Wars novels and so on, but. That doesn't really feel the same. It feels more of an industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's certainly more commercial. But it's the fact that there is oh, it's something that's evolved, but more of a unifying vision behind it all. But with the mythos, it's something that's developed organically. Uh, yeah. It, like like Lovecraft's own work. You know, it, it's full of contradictions because different people have taken it in different ways. Uh, they've reinterpreted things. You know, with vast tonal shifts and created, you know, turned the mythos into you know into their own things as writers. Well, that's interesting you say that, Scott. I mean, thinking about all the writers that are drawn to participate and and create within Lovecraft's world that he, he authored. You know, is that the appeal of gaming as well? Because as yeah. gamers, we also want to kind of have a part and participate in that world. Now, he's known as a horror writer. That implies it's going to be frightening. Do we find it frightening? I wouldn't say frightening. I'd say atmospheric. There's a difference. 
So it's about atmosphere. Yeah, and it, I, mean, I would say that's part of the appeal to me very much, though, that when you read a Lovecraft story, you know you're reading a Lovecraft story. It's like he's a, you know, like if we think of sort of film auteur directors like David Lynch or somebody, you watch one of his films and you know you're watching a David Lynch film. You know you're reading a, an H.P. Lovecraft story for, for the most part, you know, for his, his better-known pieces because he reading it, you feel you're sort of transported into this other place and it's certainly a disquieting one i mean you know as we touched on before you know it's a very nihilistic world it's a world where ultimately everything is futile and as a result i mean it's 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 dark it's oppressive it's emotionally affecting in that respect i wouldn't necessarily call it frightening but that said i did read a number of lovecraft stories you know three stories when i was a kid and i do remember actually finding those uh, you know, a bit disturbing and frightening at the time. I mean, not that uh, sort of existential dread that I'd get from reading Lovecraft as an adult, but, you know, actually frightening in the way that you, you'd expect horror to be frightening. Yeah, I wouldn't go back to his works to get frightened by them. Yeah, certainly when I first read one or two of them, they did have that effect on me, but I don't think that was the appeal. No. It's more of a byproduct in that respect. Yeah. So, standing back a little bit from the man's works, thinking of the man himself, what sparked your interest in Lovecraft as a person? I remember back when I first read his works, there were these kind of myths going around about him that, talking to other friends, you'd get these kind of hand-me-down myths about him being kind of cold-blooded, like a reptile, and he wouldn't be able to go out outside. Um, and, like, you know, this isn't true, but somehow it made this guy seem, my God, you know, what was he like? And people would sort of say these bizarre things about Lovecraft, which kind of sparked my imagination almost as much as his stories, I think. So I wanted to sort of know about him. Equally, you know, when I've read a few other authors, I guess particularly the, the kind of world-building or yeah, authors... There's a, an interest in knowing about the author as a vehicle to understand their works more. And I think with Lovecraft, that's especially compelling because his worldview is so unique. You, you can't help but feel that this has come out of something, that his experiences as a person have shaped him in such a way that this is how he perceives reality. And I think that when we read his stories and if we click with that scientific rationalist approach that non-religious approach that sense that humanity is not the it's not a humanocentric universe then i think there's a a halo effect that we get of, of whereby you know you find something out about a person that you like and by extension you think that person is just like you which is you know clearly untrue but there's a there's an association that oh you know, that person likes this thing. Oh, they're probably like me. Yes. They probably like all these other things I like as well. And then you find out, oh, actually, they don't, you know. But, but Matt, I mean, you don't share this interest in, in Lovecraft as a person. No, not at all. Uh, I, it's not just Lovecraft. It's any author. Um, I take a, quite a divorced approach is that I look at the works and the creator as two very separate things, and mm. I'm only interested in the works they put out. I really couldn't care less what the person 
has done or what they're like, as long as the quality of the material they put out is something I like and I enjoy in isolation for what it is without any contextual strings that might be accurate, might be inaccurate, might be just theories, there might be hypotheses, because I didn't enough for that at university. I don't want to do that in a wider extension because I don't think it adds anything more than what the words on the page are supposed to be. But but as a writer, you know, who's obviously got, you know, you've got your own creative process and your own inspirations and so on, don't, don't you ever find yourself interested in the things that shape other writers? Only in terms of what other art would influence them, such as Lovecraft had an inspira- um, drew inspiration from Dunsany and Edgar mm. Allan Poe. I also like those uh, those authors. I like the, of like, correction, I like the material they put out. So I would look at their art, but again, I wouldn't look necessarily at the people behind them. Mm. Okay. It's, I, I very much try to keep the people and their work as separate mm. as possible so that I don't... I suppose contaminate is maybe a, a very strong word for it, but don't they don't shape my perception of what just the work itself is because the way I view it, as I say, is that it should be viewed in isolation for what it is without having that baggage that you can interpret one way or another. I'd rather have just the definitive article. And when you go back and reread Lovecraft now, do you still get as much out of it? Do you, do you, yeah, do you find I think so. When, I, when I go back and read Lovecraft yeah. stories now, which is, you know, fairly unusual, um, often, you know, we're doing an episode about a particular story or, or I want to check up on a story for something. And they, they tend to fade with time in my mind, as, as most things do. And then I go back, you know, you go back to the original source and you're like, oh, my God, this is so good. You know, I'm talking about a, a certain group of his stories when I talk about his work because some yeah. of it doesn't hold the same appeal for well, me. Well, particularly his very early stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the kind of core, what we'd term Cthulhu mythos stories, you know, The Colour Out Space, um, Shadow Over Innsmouth and so on, going back and reading them, they're, they're so rich and they have such an atmosphere that, that going back to them, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly kind of reminded, oh, my God, you know, this is uh, really good stuff. How about you, Matt? Similar to Paul's answer then, actually, that because um, we had this come up a little while ago while we were discussing uh, From Beyond, that I remembered a very, very mm. different interpretation of that story um, than to how the, you that had read it more recently had had viewed it. And similar things with um, when we did the episode on Dagon. I didn't remember various aspects of that that thought, oh yeah, this could tie in quite nicely with the Stuart Gordon adaptation. But Again, just images that hadn't stuck in my mind and various concepts and elements of the story and so forth. That I think, yeah, it would be... I'd get a different impression just purely because my memory is so terrible. <laughs> that's why. I, and I think that's an interesting thing, that because our perceptions of Lovecraft are so shaped and reshaped by the fact that we're interacting through his materials, through games and uh, through film adaptations and television and comics so much, that it's, it is sometimes really eye-opening to go back to the original stories and remember exactly what he said. Well, I think it's, it's not for no reason that we have a segment in, of our podcast entitled The Lovecraft Word of the Week. When you read his work, it's not just the story, but there's the whole flavour of the words that he chooses to use, which are very evocative mm. and very unusual. I mean, it's enough to put some people off, but if you're into that, then it's... it. Yeah, it kind of communicates the whole atmosphere and story and everything in a in a way that is very unusual. What are the less appealing aspects of Lovecraft and his work? 
So in the previous section, we dwelled on the positive aspects of Lovecraft and his work that appeals to us. Now let's take a look at some of the less appealing things, some of the things that have put people off over the decades. And I think one I would probably start with is the adjectival you know, load of his work that, that is yeah. quite impenetrable to some people or, or off-putting. I mean, I've heard him often talked about as a poor writer or a bad writer for this very reason. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting one. And it's one that I'm not entirely unsympathetic to. I Certainly, even for the time he was writing, which was, you know, 100 years ago in some cases, his work was archaic in his style. Yeah, he, he does write very dense prose. He writes very adjective-laden prose at times. What I've, I've been surprised by in going back and rereading him is that a lot of it isn't quite as clunky or awkward as I remember. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I think for all, you know, in the modern day, we, we look at writers, you know, who have been inspired by people like Hemingway and their much more pared down pro style and so, sort of automatically say this is good, that there is something about the floridness of Lovecraft's po- prose that is otherworldly, transformative. And, yeah. and when, when we read some of those passages, I mean, each one is almost always just a sentence that we read for the Lovecraft Word of the Week. That, that really makes us focus on the words and reading them aloud. And we're each stood here listening to the other person read and, and reading it and make sure they get it right. Some of the phrases that he uses, they're just fantastic. I, and some of them, though, you know, are quite funny for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in this episode, for example, I, I don't know about you, but we got to the phrase, in the, you know, the bit where the Matt read of phosphorescent sockets. And yeah, I, I don't know. I was just thinking, yeah, it, it, th- that, that's my next band name. The, they are the best kind of sockets. Um, I was also thinking as well, uh, this might be a uh, revelation to some dear listeners, but yeah, we do not do those t- uh, do those readings in one take. <laughs> Boy, do we not do those readings in one take. Oh, speak for yourself, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah bugger um, yeah it's quite a challenge yeah uh, they did come up about the idea of having a lovecraftian drinking game uh, can you get through a whole sentence without stumbling or mispronouncing something and so yeah my fucking liver would be destroyed if i tried that game but it's interesting the things that make us stumble in his prose and this you know this is actually going back on topic here aren't usually the the more florid words he uses it tends to be his odd sentence structure and strange choices yeah. of words and combinations thereof yeah yeah it's picking up the rhythm of what he's saying is sometimes quite difficult when you're reading it aloud yeah and what about his lack of female characters oh, God, uh, yes. or you know dialogue and so on or his ability to write characters full stop it doesn't really present us with very three-dimensional characters they tend to be you know stereotypically academic uh characters pretty much like hp lovecraft quite often um, stephen king gets away with writing about sodding alcoholic writers all the time what's the problem with ha- <laughs> uh, what's the problem with having um, yeah, but stephen king stories. writes pretty well-rounded characters he's very good at writing characters i think there's a debate but but, but, but he does write a a breadth of characters so yeah he does have a certain type he keeps returning to over and over again but he yeah in between he writes a breadth of them that you don't tend to get that breadth in lovecraft his characters are yeah as paul said very much like him but more than that they tend to be ciphers you're you're given certain bits of key information which affect how they interact with the mysteries they're unfolding. But on the whole, 
you don't really come away knowing any more about them as people than if you'd read their obituary in a newspaper. But my counterpoint to that would be, then, is the story any less engaging or any less fun because of that? Yeah. And and uh, I think I, I put down in my notes here, should we care? Yeah, no. That is my answer to that. I, well, I, I, I think there's an interesting comparison to be made here with another writer I read a lot as a teenager, which is Isaac Asimov. Um, Asimov, you know, as an adult, you know, going back to him now, I wouldn't call him a good prose writer by any means. Uh, he had some fantastic ideas, um, and, and he developed them well. He, you know, incorporated a lot of real science and and uh, had some really mind-blowing ways of interpreting things and extrapolating them. His prose is, at best, a vehicle for conveying these mm. ideas. And his characters are the same. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I see exactly the same in Lovecraft. You know, Asimov is still revered, and, you know, rightly so, and his stories... Particularly, I think when you're young, you know, will 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 shape the way you you know, you perceive the world, and I think it's the same with Lovecraft. Now, you had a friend, Scott, who was put off of Lovecraft by the bleakness of his worldview. Yeah, well, this is this was an old girlfriend of mine. Um, yeah, this is not something that would have occurred to me because I mean that is, yeah. as we discussed, is one of the appeals to us. I think. Well, it, it, it was interesting. The, 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 this was an old girlfriend of mine who was a, a black woman from the US. She was interested in reading Lovecraft. So the first thing that I, you know, warned her about is, you know, he can get pretty fucking racist in places. You know, you will find certain things in there which, you know, I, I, yeah, I am embarrassed to be recommending this book to you when you encounter these. And she read a few of his stories and it, it wasn't the racism that got her. She, after a while, she sort of said, oh, no, I, yeah, I don't really like his stuff. And then, the reason she gave was the nihilism. The, the reason she said was that, you know, having grown up in African-American communities in the US, that she believed that optimism and hope was a vital part of life. For, for a community that had, you know, come out of so much sorrow and suffering, that optimism was was life. That, um, mm. you know, then to be confronted with someone who was the antithesis of all this. Uh, she found, I, not, not, not upsetting, but distasteful. Because yeah, I wonder, you know, we come from relatively affluent, middle-class backgrounds. Do we have that, uh, uh, as you said, a privilege that, you know, we can indulge ourselves in this nihilistic worldview without it really worrying us too much? Yeah. I don't know, it's a bit of armchair psychology, really, but... <laughs> no, um, no, I, I, think, I think there really is something to that. But, I mean, that's certainly not universal in, our, in, you know, in, in, in any culture, I would say. But you touched upon the, the big one there, Scott, is, of course, the racism in Lovecraft's work. And I think any yeah. conversation about this is, is very difficult. I mean, for myself, I would find it very difficult discussing this topic because when one talks of someone, as I've said, I don't know, admires is perhaps the wrong word but someone who you know i'll just use the word like or intrigued by with hp lovecraft talking about his racism as a, as a aspect of the man i don't want to get into anything whereby i feel like i'm making an excuse for lovecraft's yeah. racism I'm, I'm very wary of doing that and right. any kind of sense of justifying it you know i don't want to accidentally go down that that road because you know, all three of us would, would not want to do that. 
No, I, I, this is it's it's always a very thorny subject to get involved in discussions about, and I see you know two strands of discussion, particularly online, that make this very very difficult to you know discuss in a, a larger forum. The first is. The, the approach that because of Lovecraft's racism, then, you know, everything to do with him is, you know, distasteful. His work is automatically invalidated and that, you know, he is, he is not a fit subject for discussion. Oh, no, not for discussion, but he, he is not fit to be celebrated in any way that, mm. you know, that, that, that his worst impulses and aspects of it, you know, uh, undermine everything else that he might have done. And that seems to tie in very much with a kind of non-platforming ethos. Um, which is quite prevalent today. Yeah. You know, if anybody said anything at all over the line, then everything of which they said is discounted. Yes. But, but the other strand, which I find even more aggravating, is the dismissive one. The, the sort of classic way I see this brought up is, oh, Lovecraft's racism wasn't a big thing. He was just a man of his time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's almost like a code word for, you know, you know, shut up and stop talking about this. He was a man of his time. What do you expect? He was a man of his time. He was writing this 100 and years ago. And that feels like making an excuse for it. It does. Saying it's okay because, you know, it doesn't, what, it doesn't exist now? Well, yeah, I mean, th there are two reasons why this drives me nuts. One is Lovecraft's racism was extreme even for his time. I, you know, a number of his friends and his correspondents did take exception at, at things he said. He wasn't by any means the most racist person you would come across in that time. No, there seems to be quite a popular thread at the time yeah. of putting forth that idea that you know certain races were above others so the kind of teutonic aryan white northern european race was the superior one well, lovecraft was even more specific than that if someone wasn't from anglo-saxon stock they were automatically somehow degenerate which leaves it a little surprising that his uh, wife was jewish yeah particularly seeing as he was really quite anti-semitic yeah but, you know, he rationalised this as, you know, that, that she was assimilated, that um, she didn't somehow represent Jewish culture. But I think this is what we do, isn't it? We decide that we like a person or we like an idea or a thing, and then we, we look for evidence to back up our opinion and we dismiss evidence to the contrary. So if we've decided we like Lovecraft, we can kind of you know, say, oh, in, in our mind, compartmentalise the racism and kind of put that to one side. Whereas yeah. there are politicians that I could name in this country that who are racist, who I condemn because of that one thing I use as a, as a lever to kind of condemn them. Just going back to this, I mean, the second aspect of this that I'd say, you know, drives me nuts about that, you know, of his time argument, because I did say there were two. When people are reading his stuff now, we're not in Lovecraft's time. And, you know, for a modern reader to, to read a story like, you know, Herbert West Reanimator or The Call of Cthulhu, expecting a horror story, yeah, and, and having heard, you know, particularly in the case of The Call of Cthulhu, having heard wonderful things about it, and then, you know, reaching that section in the middle uh, about the ritual going on in the Louisiana Bayou and some of the, the descriptions of the celebrants there it, using really quite you know, racist terms. Yeah, this is not questionable. This no. is This is definite. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, 
I, I remember when we were at Gateshead last year doing that seminar um, and the book signing up there, one of the organisers asked us in our question and answer session how we as writers address Lovecraft's racism because she had just read Herbert West Reanimator and got to, you know, that stage about a quarter of the way through and thought, what the fuck am I reading? Mm. And, yeah, it wasn't an easy question to answer. Well, you did a good job of it, as I recall, Scott, but I can't remember quite how you worded <laughs> well, it. But. I, I, I think I basically said, yeah, we, 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 we focus on the elements of Lovecraft's work that we like. We don't incorporate any of the racism. And, I, well, I think what I, you know, what I said to her that, that she liked was that I found it encouraging that the writers that had come after Lovecraft had embraced... The, the, the positive aspects of his work and that the racism seemed to be confined just to him and not to the larger Cthulhu mythos and the, 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 the community of writers who have created and developed that. It does seem to me when I read his works that there are works with explicit racism and there are other works that are kind of informed by the fears that he has of other cultures. But in those other stories... There's that theme of fear of the other. And I feel that he's developed that fear and he's kind of distilled it and expressed it about something else, about a cosmic horror. And I can associate mm. with that because I think we all have fears and he's kind of distilled it down to a well, sense of fear. It's not just fear, though. I mean, the, the, this is one of the things... I've, I've mentioned this a few times when we've done the Lovecraftian Word of the Week, that it's more than just fear in Lovecraft, it's revulsion, and they're two different things. A lot of the language that Lovecraft uses to describe the things that, that the protagonists are frightened of is the language of disgust. The, you know, the, these things are, are not just terrifying but they're repellent and i think this this ties in very much with his his worldview his fear of the other and you know the racism was part of that but it was fear of you know xenophobia in general fear of other cultures but but i i think you know fear of all sorts of things i mean you know the risk of sounding a bit you know, facetious here you know his fear of the sea um you know it, it, the, the the revulsion that ties in with all that you know it, when he reinterprets all these things in his stories, they come across more as disgust than terror. If he hadn't have been racist, would he have been able to write the stories that he wrote? I'd say no, um, because a lot of his, as you say, a lot of his inspiration comes from that fear of anything different. Um, you certainly wouldn't have had The Shadow of Rinsmith. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't have had pulling up maybe another example. I mean, you wouldn't probably wouldn't, to a lesser extent, have had the shadow out of time. Or, or the Dunwich Horror. Yeah, exactly. Again, this mm. concept of mating with something that wasn't human. It's... I think in that case that there is... Well, as I say, I try to divorce the writer from the work well, as much yes, as I, I can. Well, yes, I think that's a very yeah. relevant... In, in this case, you can't, because there is a very definite this is where it came from, and it, you can't really counter that argument. It's almost like a guilty realisation that this is one of the things that attracts me to Lovecraft's work. The fact that I don't, as a person, tend to feel much in the way of revulsion. Um, you know, I, I just don't seem to be wired for it. There are very few things that repel me on that visceral level. I mean, there are some, but there, there aren't many. And getting this insight into the mind and the, the view of someone who sees the world in such a different way than I do 
and can convey his his fears and his disgust in such an effective way, I I find compelling. There are times, you know, particularly in stories like The Shadow of Rinsmith, where I've been reading through this and, you know, sort of maybe not quite identifying with it, but immersing myself in these feelings, where I sort of come away from it, disquieted it the way it's resonated to me and created feelings that I don't normally have. He seems to me, you know, to, to use a metaphor, he seems a bit like a, a clam that's taken this, this horrible bit of grit and transformed it into a pearl. And, you know, we've, we've got the pearl and that, that, that's some fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. Or um, using a Simpsons analogy, a rose that uh, sprung from a um, pile of dirt. <laughs> mm. But I mean, at the same time, you know, it, it is fair to say that you know the racism in his stories isn't just subtext. I mean, there aren't that many, but there's you know, I'd say a good half dozen of of his stories where there is some pretty explicit racism in there. Mm. Yeah, and um, I mean, this is probably what's more than anything else what's led to. His, uh, him becoming such a problematic figure in modern fandom. With the World Fantasy Award. Yeah, so. because the World Fantasy Award until recently was a bust of, of Lovecraft. And um, I, I can't remember who it was, but there was a black science fiction writer who won the award a few years back, who was, uh, if I remember correctly, was actually unfamiliar with Lovecraft and his work. And someone, you know, mentioned to him afterwards and just sort of said, you know, y- you do know, you know, who that was and, and you know, what he believed and what he wrote about. And, you know, th- this, this led to this sort of spiralling reassessment of Lovecraft. We ended up with him, you know, his, his, his image being taken off the World Fantasy Award. I mean, disturbingly, there was um, another award that was created in its aftermath, which actually does use this new bust of him, uh, which you know, is another weird fiction award, which was created by a white supremacist publishing house. Um, and, you know, they, they, they sort of said that, you know, oh, co- you know that, that's completely coincidental. But somehow everyone they've awarded it to since then has been some kind of white supremacist. Shock horror. Um, so yeah, there are people who embrace that aspect of Lovecraft, mm. and that that's you know especially troubling. So I don't want to dwell on this too long, but you said right. about the explicitly racist aspects of some of his stories. When you read those, then do you, I mean are we not just kind of brushing? Well, what do you do? Do we just brush them under the carpet? Do we just skip over them? Do we? Kind of almost edit them out in our mind. No, I certainly just... don't edit them out in my mind. I, you know, when I was rereading the Call of Cthulhu a few years back, I mean, it had been you know twenty-five years or something since I'd read it before, and I've forgotten you know exactly the way he describes that bit in the Louisiana Bayou. Uh, yeah, I found myself genuinely shocked. I mean, same way when I reread Herbert West Reanimator. No, no, I, 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 I don't sort of mentally edit it out. I mean, it's. It's it's uncomfortable and for all the wrong reasons. And I guess one of the things that makes me especially uncomfortable is the realization that this stuff didn't bother me the first time I read through it back in mm. back back in the nineteen eighties, and sort of wondering why the fuck it didn't. What about you, Matt? It's a hard one to answer. Um, I suppose it makes it definitely makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like reading such material but then I don't want to stop and miss the rest of the story of what comes after it so if anything it's like I personally I have a terrible fear of needles I'm absolutely terrified of injections and that that kind of thing um 
there are times when I'll just have to grip my teeth and have, have one plunged in my arm, knowing that it's going to be a few minutes, a few seconds, and then it's gone. It's a similar kind of feeling that if you just plow through it and then get through it, I'll get to the good stuff afterwards again. That it's a painful thing to have to go through and knowing that it's there. It's not a case of forgetting about it. It's just having to push through and, like I say, finally realise that there is a good story at the end of it. Hmm. What aspects of Lovecraft do we think have been underutilised in gaming? So, I mean, if we're trying to get back to what what makes you know Lovecraft exciting to us, what is it about you know what, what elements are there that we'd like to see more of in games? These things that we love about Lovecraft that you know we're not necessarily seeing enough in in Lovecraft in role playing. On one level, I'd like to see more that connects to the original stories. Um, it's one thing that um, they did with House of Relay, that they did scenarios that were sequels or prequels, or at least tied into the story that Lovecraft wrote. And again, a bit like Beyond the Mountains of Madness is a sequel to At the Mountains of Madness. Having more concrete ties to some of the stories is nice. It's like thinking, oh yeah, what would have happened necessarily if, um, like in the modern day, a uh, salvage crew t- uh, try to recover the sunken submarine in the temple, for example. That would be a scenario mm. I'd love to write and maybe even play. I, I'm going to say exactly the opposite. I, I, I'd like to see less stuff drawn from the explicit elements of his stories. I'd like to see fewer people reusing the monsters and, and, and the gods and, and the locations and embrace more the... The, the 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 nihilistic philosophy certainly we've discussed the cosmicism um you know the this this sense of man's unimportance in the world this sense of great forces that are beyond our comprehension because you know the the whole idea of them being beyond our comprehension the these alien horrors that are just pressing down on us and could snuff us out the whole time there is too much of a familiarity in you know reusing elements of Lovecraft, and by doing so, I think we actively undermine what makes him special. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there already. I think people are writing more good stuff, but um, ultimately, I think people are drawn to the games they want to play, and a lot of this stuff has been has been done really well. Hmm. There's implicit in the question. It seems to say that there's stuff that hasn't been done yet and there is stuff that hasn't been done yet i'm sure but but there are you know scenarios out there that have quite a lovecraftian feel there are games out there there's a lot out there that have a more kind of adventury or pulpy feel but there's there's a wide spectrum of scenarios and campaigns out there many of which you know use the lovecraftian themes in all their myriad wonder pretty effectively All right, so it's my great pleasure to welcome Sandy Peterson, the original author of Call of Cthulhu and creator of the board game Cthulhu Wars, among many other things. So uh, welcome, Sandy. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing just dandy. <laughs> Marvelous. How's life out there in Texas? Texas is, of course, a, um, a, a lovely tropical paradise in which everything is always good. <laughs> uh, except... <laughs> It's especially good if you're an alligator or, you know, a rattlesnake, but uh, it's, it's not completely terrible for people as well. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. It's not completely terrible. That well, it's sounds not much the like... tornado season now, so that's really good, too. Not, not the what season? Better. It's not tornado season. Oh, okay. 
It's in the fall. Yeah, not, not, not so different to England then. Actually, it's the spring right now. And so for about six weeks, all the wildflowers bloom everywhere. And it's actually very attractive. Um, and then after the six weeks are over, it goes back to looking like East Texas. So, right. Depressing, but. <laughs> As we've been discussing on our show, we're talking about the appeal of H.P. Lovecraft and uh, both the positive and the uh, the negative. So I'd like to kick things off by asking you, can you encapsulate what it is about Lovecraft that, that appeals to you about the man and his work? So the deal with me in Lovecraft is that I read my first Lovecraft story whereas when I was eight years old. And I, I was one of those obnoxious, precocious kids that spent a lot of time reading and annoying other people. And uh, so I read so I read Lovecraft, and all I knew at the time was I'd never read anything like him before. And I'd read a lot. I was, I'd read some Poe stories, and I'd tried to read Moby Dick and failed. And, I, you know, I, I, just, I, was, I read a lot. And Lovecraft was like something new. And I got really fascinated by him. And then... The one book I had that had Lovecraft vanished away. He was really hard to find at this time. This is like in the mid-60s. And I wasn't able to get my, find the book again for literally three years, at uh, which time I was thrilled to find it again. And then over time, gradually, I was able to find more stories of Lovecraft. The original book I had tantalized me because the introduction mentioned stories I didn't have in the book, like the thing at the doorstep. So sort of my appeal to Lovecraft was partly the thrill of the chase, trying to find this obscure author that wasn't in print anywhere, that I couldn't find at the library or in the bookstore. And uh, and partly it was my eight-year-old reaction to, what the heck, a whole town of monsters, how cool is that? A giant thing under the sea. You, gotta, you have to remember that when I read the story, The Call of Cthulhu, I had no idea what a Cthulhu was. No, you know, it was like, what is this strange alien word? You know, and at yeah. the end of the story, when he's revealed, it was like a shock to me. That's probably an experience that's very difficult to have today, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. but that was mine. So I'm not sure that I can dissociate that I can dissociate my eight year old illogical emotional attachment from a rational description of why Lovecraft is awesome. Except maybe by parodying things that uh, uh, I'd read horror story. I like ghost stories and stuff, but Lovecraft weren't the same. I guess the fundamental thing that really amazed me about Lovecraft was uh, first that um, <clears throat> every other horror story I had read, the way it worked was that you had people in the normal world and then something bad happened. And then at the end of the story, Maybe someone was dead, maybe someone was dead, but like you were back in the normal world again, and the and the horror was over, and everyone's like, man, that was bad. But in Lovecraft stories, you start in the normal world, then something bad would happen, and the and the bad thing would change your understanding of how the world actually worked. And so at the end of the story, you're not able to go back and return to the normal world. Right, you find out that in fact all human existence is is a lie, or that you are a deep one, or that, like, uh, it, you know, like it's all everything's changed, and that was a thing that right. Lovecraft did that was unusual. Plus, he had ideas that were just uh, bizarre, based the, the the huge cult 
uh, uh, underlying se- uh, secret gnosis that he has going on, the way that he tied together stories and references in other books and got other authors to do it. So I'd read some other guy and it would mention the Necronomicon and I was like, is Necronomicon real? What the heck is going on here? But that, that those concepts were were new and exciting to me. So Yeah, now I can see that. I mean, Building on that though, I... Uh, at what point, if ever, did you become interested in the man behind the stories? The man behind the stories was never the main focus of my interest. I know that that St. Yoshi really is interested in Lovecraft's personality and loves reading his letters. And I've read some of his letters, but mostly to me, well, what Lovecraft was interested in was his. Well, not interested in, but Lovecraft, the way he revealed himself to people was the stories. So that's kind of where it, where it went for me. I didn't. I haven't gone off to become a. Now I must study everything about Lovecraft because I like his stories. The same way I, I love G.K. Chesterton, but I don't. But I don't obsessively read biographies of him. Right. I'm happy just to see how he reveals himself in his in his poems and his tales. Right. It's the stories. That's what I care about. His his life is interesting to a, an extent because it's so weird. But mostly, I find Lovecraft's life frustrating because he kept he keeps doing things that that kept him from writing more stories that I wish he hadn't done. You know, so um, yeah, because yeah. I want more stuff from Lovecraft, and I don't get to have it because he wrote two hundred thousand pages of letters to these like <laughs> random friends. Um, <laughs> Or because when he's discouraged by Farnsworth Wright into thinking he's a bad writer, he doesn't do anything for six months. And it's like, oh, seriously? Why couldn't he be more like Elsprague de Camp, who was a fabulously worse writer, but but he was prolific and he would return and and keep on doing things, you know? So, but I guess if he was more like Elsprague de Camp, then I would just have another Sprague de Camp, so maybe I shouldn't complain. Mm, Yes. (laughs) We've talked about somebody who uh, was kind of put off Lovecraft because he had such a bleak vision of the world. Um, oh, that's I mean, what got me. The fact that that Lovecraft's cults, for example, were oh. all like they're they're not supernatural. They're all like completely atheistic and materialistic. I mean, the, you worship his gods for something that you're getting physically, mm. right? Your kids will live forever. Your kids will will be the son of Yoxathoth. You personally will get gold. I just was fascinated by that. You know, it was like, it seems so practical. There was none of this, oh, we must we must go, like in other stories of the time period, for example, one of the big bug, bugaboos they'd have a lot was voodoo, right? So then mm-hmm. the crazed voodoo guys with their superstitions, Lovecraft never had that. His guys weren't superstitions at all. They were mm-hmm. they were practical, like like agnostic. I mean, they were crazed, right? Mm-hmm. But, 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 uh, but not fooled, if you know what I mean. Scientific yeah. rationalism that he kind of um, seemed to to hold. So that a lot of his protagonists seem almost like an analog of H.P. Lovecraft to some degree. Well, part of the part of what he he was doing. One of the reasons that that, that makes him unusual is he's he's accused a lot of of the fact that his main characters don't have very much personality. Well, that's intentional because. If he gives his main characters these 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 bright, sparkling, weird personalities, then you can't project yourself onto them as easily. And so mm. the fact that his main characters, like are like for example, Wilmarth in uh, uh, the Whisper in Darkness, has mm. very little background personality. He's just a stuffy middle-aged guy, right? Then you're able to project yourself onto him, and he becomes you in the story. Right. Yeah. Right. I can't. You know, and 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 that's that's added to by the fact they're all they're all uh, done, told first person, right? 
If you have mm. a, this really quirky guy, like an American Psycho, I'm not the guy in American Psycho. I can't be. He's too different from me. But I can totally be Wilmarth. Right? Even to the point that I get irked when Wilmarth shows my failings. You know, which occasion... Which, so, so yeah. So Lovecraft's characters are him, because that's what he thought of as the neutral guy. But he doesn't give... He doesn't put all his weird stuff into the characters. Lovecraft has a very distinct personality. So that's one of Lovecraft's tricks, is that instead of having all this 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 powerful... Like, for example, you've read uh, The Colorado Space... Mm, sure. I guarantee yeah. you know a lot more about the personality of of the farmer than the narrator. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yet the narrator is the main guy in it, but nope, it's the farmer that you care about, old old Amy. Yeah. Right. He he has personality, you know, because of the way it's written, and that's how he wants it to be because he wants you to be the narrator, and that is a, a Lovecraft thing that he he doesn't he he doesn't get the credit he deserves for the subtleties he did in my opinion. He actually did a lot of interesting things. For example, people will read his big reveals at the end of a story, which are kind of always pretty obvious, right? Yeah. But he didn't realize what he's trying to do with that, which I don't know if you have time, but I can go into a second because I, because it really impressed me. Oh, yeah. Please. Go ahead. Okay. So you've all, you've read, the, I don't think I'm giving spoilers away to say that the end of the story, the, the whisperer in darkness, he finds the face and hands of uh, Henry Akeley. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But but before that point, the reader is absolutely convinced that the thing in the chair is not equally but an awful thing from outer space worried him, right? Sure. What Lovecraft is doing, he it's not it, it looks like a O. Henry type surprise in the style it's written, but it's not that. What Lovecraft is doing is he is one of the issues with his outlandish stories is that obviously there's a a dissonance because you're reading this story and there's a whole town of monsters or there's aliens up on round mountain. Um, and, and obviously this is bogus, right? So you don't believe it. So what Lovecraft does is he has the main character not believe it. Okay. So what happens is you're reading this and the main character is, is poo pooing the existence of aliens or all these things. And so what happens is you start getting irked that he's so oblivious to the obvious truth that there's aliens and so instead of um having to suspend having to suspend your disbelief you are actively arguing mentally against the main character you fool can't you see it's all real right and so you're bought in and and this and the disbelief problem just goes away you're just bought into the story because you're trying to get this guy to see it then at the end he is finally convinced way after you were Okay, that's that's where he has to finally see it, and that's what's going on. It's not a shock reveal. I mean, it is to the guy because he's a numbnuts, but <laughs> but to you, Lovecraft is making you join on his side, arguing for the factual nature of his alien horrors by having the main guy not be on his side. If the guy was sitting there saying, "Oh, here's my evidence that there's alien monsters," you would you would roll your eyes and dismiss him, right? But since he's not. Like you say, can't you see it? Look at these monsters, and that's what that's what he's doing. And that's that's one of the reasons these stories have a stronger impact because you are seeing you you are you are bought into them because of the 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 nature and the skepticism of the character. How does that relate to the Call of Cthulhu role playing game? Then, so we're playing a character, and we're kind of having to play often a character that that doesn't believe in the mythos initially at least and yet we as players i guess this is almost a parallel to what you just said we as players 
wholly believe that there are monsters in this game world. Yes, yes, and we're entertained by the character not believing that. And also, there is the fact that the sanity system is rigged up so that when the character, so the character is harmed by understanding and believing in the monsters, right, and following them, so that that gives you an extra motivation to to avoid them. Mm. You know, plus one of the things about the Lovecraft monsters, which is really fabulous, is that unlike most horrors, like for example, if if you found out that there was like Aztec mummies loose then you would probably go call the Mexican police and come with flamethrowers and handle the Aztec mummy, right? But with Lovecraft's monsters, you don't want news of these things to get out because the more information there is on them, the more danger there is to all humanity. You know, if someone was to put the, ne- the, the Lovecraft's Necronomicon online, like how long would the world last? Mm-hmm. Right? You have to keep mm-hmm. these things secret. So you're motivated in a way that... That that you're that in a lot of other horrible things you're not. I mean, you might say, "Oh, people shouldn't know about the Frankenstein monster because it's too terrible." But really, knowing about the Frankenstein monster would would probably prevent further Frankenstein monsters. But mm. knowing about the the cult of Cthulhu would make the cult of Cthulhu probably grow in numbers ten times. So you actually have a motivation to keep it secret, and uh, that kind of strayed went astray from what your original point was, but you get, but you know, there that's how yeah, yeah. interviews go. So tough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I doubling back to something we, we touched upon earlier. I, um, you, you say, you said that you were drawn to sort of the nihilistic worldview and this, this sort of bizarre materialism of the cults. I, uh, I mean, th- th- this you know, from from the little bit I know about you. I mean, this obviously doesn't really tie in much with your your own personal oh, no, no, philosophy or beliefs. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I believe in God, and I, I read yeah. uh, the Mormon scriptures and the Bible, and got no problem with that. But I'm but I'm I, but I'm not I'm not ashamed or sensitive about it. I don't feel insecure, so insecure in my belief that I must have all my fictional characters I read share them. Mm. Right, and uh, if I, if I go, if I posit, okay, what if there's not a god, or even if I say that there is one, that they're like the Lovecraft horrors are still able to exist because they're all, they don't actually have a supernatural background. Like for example, when I read a story, like again, using voodoo as my example, because a lot of the thirty stories have voodoo. If yeah. I read a, a voodoo story, and, and and by the way, I totally know that the old voodoo stories in the 30s are completely bogus from what real voodoo is, okay? So just, yeah. I, there's my, okay? But, so read one of these stories, and they have, like, th- this thing, oh, here's how, here's the voodoo god showing up. Well, in my head, I have to say, huh, a voodoo god? Well, I, I don't think there are voodoo gods. Maybe this is some kind of other end. I have to, I have to explain it mentally my, to myself, okay? Or if I read mm. a story in which... Uh, 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 a Catholic displays the cross and banishes a vampire. As a Mormon, the the cross has no supernatural value to me. Mm. I don't like. I have to like. Well, okay, I guess the story's doing that, but it kind of, but it kind of like I have to mentally set aside my reservations. In Lovecraft, I don't. I say, well, the universe is huge. You know, there can be horrible monsters like this. You know that 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 people would worship to do these terrible things. So the fact that Lovecraft has an atheistic. So, uh, uh, real world setting actually makes it easier for me to buy into his horrors. If I if I want to believe in a ghost, I have to figure out how that fits in my worldview of what happens in the afterlife. But I don't have to do any of that when I have a guy cast a spell that 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 uh, that that breeds in the spheres beyond and then gets him reborn into uh, re reassembled into a body. Within sort of integrating the the, the mythos 
into your kind of world belief then i'm not saying that you're going to believe in it but do you feel that there that there can be a kind of a christian god living you know in lovecraft's well universe? i mean i don't i'm obviously there's i mean lovecraft doesn't have one but uh, no. but i don't but i'm able to, to not worry about the christian god when i'm reading him right when i read about reincarnation a story where there's reincarnation i have to say yeah. huh, well i guess i i don't believe in reincarnation so i have to just like not worry about that in this, but when Lovecraft has something, oh, there's if you breed with the fish mon- with the creature of the Macalunia, babies that look like humans and turn into fish monsters, that's fine. That's biology, really. You know, so Lovecraft actually made it easier for me now I for to, to yeah. handle his horrors by doing that. You know? Because he didn't really he, he he kind of totally ignored the Christian universe. He didn't really totally rail it ignores it. it. And mm-hmm. that's what part of the charm is that he doesn't like you can, if you take a cross and, and brandish it in front of Cthulhu, it's going to absolutely do nothing. Which is mm. what, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. brandishing a cross to a bear. <laughs> or, right. <laughs> maybe less valuable than you on a bear. So <laughs> so I love that. His, all his things are materialistic and they're physical. Love, Cthulhu doesn't get his powers because he's a supernatural entity. I mean, he is, in one sense, you can say that, because he's pre- but it's because he doesn't follow the same natural laws as humanity. Right? We, we we talked in a recent episode about um, how um, the Cthulhu mythos related to science fiction and whether these things were science fiction or, or kind of you know or not, and whether the well, gods were really awesome. gods. Do you, but do you view those other entities, whether it be Yogg-Sothoth or Cthulhu or whatever, as alien entities or as gods? Okay, I mean the story of the Dunwich Horror sort of waffles on the point a little mm. bit. But then he comes and says, there's the old ones, and they're not here now, but they used to be here, and they'll come back later on. I think mm. Lovecraft pretty plainly, though he treats them as gods in the sense that they are powerful things that people worship, I guess that makes them gods, right? Mm. By definition, yeah, as something that's worshipped. But he always makes it clear these are actual physical things. They aren't coterminous. They, they aren't so large they fill the universe and so small they dwell in your heart, or if they... Or if they Oh, do that, then it's because of non-Euclidean geometry, right? I think Lovecraft pretty plainly has these things be actual other dimensional or alien or, or, or something beings. You so know, the references uh, to them as gods was kind of a misinterpretation of, of what they are. Well, I mean, they're gods because, I mean, what is a god? Is if a god is something that, that, that you worship, then it, like, they're worshipped. Like, I guess they're gods, right? I mean, here, you know, as uh, like no one few people today believe in um uh like thor as a god i mean i know there's a few but very few mm. okay thor but but if you i said thor is a god you wouldn't complain about that because you don't mm. believe in thor you would say yeah sure he's a, i mean he's you know he's a god of the ancient norse yeah that they just that they abandoned because he sucked right <laughs> but uh but he's still a god so Cthulhu is a god in that sense use the term loosely but i don't think he's He's a god in the sense that he, the, uh, of uh, of what the ancient Greeks thought Zeus was. Hmm. So, in a sense, to Lovecraft, he's more powerful than those because he actually can do something in the world and interfere with it. Zeus never threatens to destroy the world. Cthulhu will. That's the, yeah, as, as like one of the first tales ever, which had a thing that would destroy all of humanity. That's a pretty big deal. Now, of course, yeah, we have yeah. nukes, so it's it seems less amazing to us. But uh, in 1927. You know that was uh, quite a thing. Now we see um, on a on one of the, the negative sides of Lovecraft, we see his racism is 
uh, quite distinct in some of his writings uh, and more subtle in others. But his fear of kind of racial intermixing is, you know, it, it crops up in stories. One can argue it was a, it was a pretty Dunwich common horror. belief at the time that racial intermixing was bad. I mean, the, the, the uh, there was a lot of organizations that accepted this. It was not. It was not controversial right so we can look now in our our great wisdom and see that it's it's not the way they thought it was but the thing is if i want to only read things that absolutely fit perfectly with my belief of the world then i'm restricted a lot on what i can read i guess the question i'd like to ask sandy is thinking about that and how it impacted on his stories do you think that lovecraft would have written these stories if he didn't have that fear of other races I don't have to think that Lovecraft's morals were the same as mine to enjoy one of the stories. Okay? I can argue that I'm sure that Sir Thomas Mallory was a horrible racist. Mm. Okay? And creedist. But it doesn't keep me from reading Lamort to Arthur. I don't want to say that I can only read people who absolutely fit my predilections and my beliefs and my religion and my ethics because then I am actually stunting myself to a massive degree when i read i mentioned earlier i love gk chesterton well i don't love gk chesterton when he when he uh says something vaguely anti-semitic okay that yeah. that's a, that's at least a bad thing it doesn't stop me from reading the stories because he has so much good in them i think that our modern society is way too eager to suppress any fashion of speech that disagrees with them not let it be out there. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what free speech is. If you can't say something unpopular. My question isn't so much whether we agree with him or not. What I'm sort of getting at is how much you think his stories were kind of um, rooted in his um, racism or fear of racial mixing, whether whether he could have done those stories without that. Almost all of his stories or a lot of his stories are about having sex with the wrong person. Yeah. Mm. Okay, but the fact that sex can be scary is something, and that we in the modern time often refuse to admit that sex can be scary. Though really, it's just as scary for us as it was for them in the olden days, right? Um, mm. We don't want to admit it. Uh, it you know, it, it, it's like it's the, you know he has he has. I mean, he, Lovecraft has a story about a guy who had sex with a with literally a gorilla. Okay, <laughs> I think everyone can can come together and say that that shouldn't happen. <laughs> Right, and in Lovecraft story, the guy shouldn't have done it. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. so so sure, Lovecraft. Th- there's bases of those things in his stories. Uh, should there not be? You know, the the fact that there that there is a there is an instinctive reaction to what he's saying by anyone who is human makes the stories stronger. The repulsion towards having a se- towards having sex with a gorilla. And the terror in finding out that you are the spawn of such a thing is what gives this t- like the story of Arthur German whatever force it has. I mean, look, I'm able to look at, at a story like I'm able to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers and realize that part of it might be related to the fears they had about the about uh, communism in the 50s without saying that it's all entirely yeah. about communism in the 50s. The fact that that stimulated the story doesn't change its nature as an alien invasion story. The same is true of Lovecraft. The fact that Lovecraft feared miscegenation in a way that I do not doesn't mean that my attitudes toward miscegenation don't affect my reaction to his, to his, 
Arthur German or Shadow Over Innsmouth or uh, Dunwich Horror, which are all kind of about that topic. Mm. When you created Call of Cthulhu, I mean, obviously Lovecraft was the primary influence on it. Did you really set out to try to create a game that would play Lovecraft stories or were you drawn more to other mythos authors or was there was there anything in particular that informed the style of play that call that, that, that is so identified with Call of Cthulhu I wanted the um the players to do and feel the things that I saw people doing characters doing in the Lovecraft stories this is where sanity came from. People went insane in the stories when they saw something bad. People fainted dead away in the stories when they saw something bad. I wanted this to be part of the game. I wanted... I, you don't have heroes in Lovecraft going around killing a bunch of brown Jenkin monsters to, to reap experience points and then build their way up to higher level monsters, right? It's like combat is the climax of a story, if it happens at all, not not how you grind. Uh, and so I wanted to put all those things in. I, I guess looking back on myself, I was being contrarian in the nature of my design. As <laughs> In my head, I was thinking, okay, when I played a D&D at RuneQuest and you go and kill monsters and get results. In this game, we can't have combat because a monster, even if it's, quote, just a werewolf or something, is this awful, terrifying thing. That is the point, because it's a horror story, right? It's not an adventure story. Mm. So mm. everything is terrifying. And uh, if you get used to machine gunning ghouls, then they're not scary anymore. So I so I wanted uh, that to continue being scary. I wanted um, uh, the players to... I, I like the idea of the characters getting weaker and less stable over time, which is the opposite of what you get in every other role-playing game. Mm, I wanted yeah. uh, characters to spend their time like going to the library instead of uh, shooting the monsters. And all this, and, and, and in the back of the head, what was going on there was that if somebody wants to go out and fight monsters and kill them and get loot, there are lots and lots of games that do that. In, literally, every other role-playing game does that. But if someone wants to have a different experience, a, a experience where they're more focused on having something be scary, having something be a mystery, having something have a big reveal, it's exciting, then then this was the place you'd go to get it. So that became the it was it literally was every, like everyone else. If you want to kill monsters, you can do it. If you don't want to kill monsters, but want to do something else, Call of Cthulhu is where it was, and this is where a lot of the other horror games that came out after. Call of Cthulhu, kind of, uh, most of them now gone now, not all of them, like, got it wrong because they, like, they said, well, we want to have horror like Call of Cthulhu. So they tried to make it more like conventional horror where you're just going and killing monsters, which you could already do in other games. Mm-hmm. So Call of Cthulhu retained its unusual nature because that's not what happens in it. In wrapping up, Sandy, about um, H.P. Lovecraft and his work, just a hypothetical what if. How do you think you'd get on if you uh, walked into a cafe and you saw him there reading a newspaper and you went down and sat and had a chat with him? Wow, that is a really hard question to answer because mm. um, he's a uh, he's a a, a well read bookish person like me. And logically, I should get along with someone like that. But on the other hand, maybe not. Um, I guess, I guess I would be so impelled to have him like to want him to like me that I would probably 
like him by default. But if I met him without knowing about his stories and stuff, then I, I can't say. You know, mm-hmm. uh, people that meet him and talk to him say that he apparently was was really interesting to talk to. Um, and he knew a lot about a lot of subjects, which I'm told by other people is a trait that I sometimes display. <laughs> yeah. I hope I would like him. And I hope he would like me. Oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, Andy. And thank you very much. I mean, that's been a fascinating discussion. We we plan to have you back again on the show in, in a few episodes time when we'll ask you some questions about uh, uh, the the story, uh, The Call of Cthulhu. But for the time being, thank you very much for your thoughts on, the, on, on H.P. Lovecraft and his work. Okay, you bet. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, once again, it is that time in the episode when we thank all those generous souls who have given us money via Patreon. Uh, We are grateful to each and every one of you, and we rely on this money to pay for all our operating costs, and there are a surprising number of those. Uh, So thank you very much for your generosity. And, of course, we we thank new patrons by name, and we offer special varieties of thanks as well, which we shall get to in a moment. But for the time being, let us, in a more prosaic way, uh, thank... Well, who's first, Paul? First on the list today is Simon Leach. Thank you very much, Simon. Yes, thank you very much, Simon. Hey, thanks, Simon. And thank you very much to Ian Westbrook. Indeed, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. And also, thank you goes out to Fenris Games. I understand they're um, at fenrisgames.com, and I have a wide selection of miniatures and role-playing games. So, thank you very much. Yep, thank you very much to Fenris Games. Yes, thank you to Fenris Games. And a big thanks to William Payne. Yeah, thank you very much, William. Hey, cheers, William. And thank you very much to Joseph Outram. Indeed, thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. And moving up to our generous $3 backers, we have Douglas McAndrew. Thank you very much, Douglas. Cheers. Cheers, Douglas. Yes, cheers, Douglas. As I hinted darkly earlier, we have more extreme ways of thanking our $5 backers. Oh, God. Yep. Uh, we have, we actually have quite a lot of $5 backers to thank at the moment, but the way we thank them is through the medium of what we laughingly call song. But we're rationing it out now, so yeah. it's two backers per show, because we don't want to inflict, you know, more than, than two on, on the listeners. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I still believe torture is against the Geneva Convention, after all. Yes, and I, I think each one does inflict, what, 2d6 sand loss, so yeah, the cumulative effect is, is potentially quite dangerous. And that's just on me. Before we launch into the song itself, we did have a bit of feedback from one of the people we sang to in the last episode, uh, my old friend Ted Blanchard, uh, who said, uh, Guys, that um, musical tribute was everything I had hoped for, and it summoned the spirit of the game under discussion quite nicely. I thought at least it sounded very much as if you were reluctantly and wretchedly carrying out the deranged, sadistic commands of a half-mad tyrant, with a nice balance of self-loathing and fear, to pronounce the dread formulae of my name. As I believe they say on your side of the pond, cheers. I, I, I'd like to think that we actually bring that combination of factors to everything we sing. <laughs> but, but, Can you remember uh, who directed us on that one, Matt? It was uh, what he means by a deranged... 
sadistic comments of a half-mad tyrant, wasn't it? Was I it think Scott? it was Scott's idea. Was it? I think it was Scott, yeah. right? It wouldn't be the but first time. you do time. say you know this guy, Scott, so yeah, it yeah. sounds like he knows you pretty well as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> a half-mad tyrant. Deranged <laughs> statistic commands. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, we haven't seen each other for over 30 years, but apparently Ted still has my number. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on with the singing. So we have two people to thank. So the first one goes out to Gregory Larson. Yes, thank you, Gregory. Brace yourself. Gregory Larson, 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 Gregory Larson. Our second tribute goes out to Lee Carnell. Now, now Lee is uh, the creator of the Doll's House, isn't he? Yes, Doll, Doll's House with D-H-O-L-E-S. The, the big doll. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so if you've not seen the Doll's House before, it's an online resource uh, that produces automatic Call of Cthulhu characters, and there is now a, a, a scenario generator in there as well. So it is really cool stuff. Once again, we've had some discussion online about the latest episode. If you recall, our previous episode looked at the game My Life with Master. Yeah, and we had um, some feedback from from Steve Dempsey, who has posted a bunch of actual play reports or links to actual play, play reports um, on our uh, Google Plus community, uh, linking to discussions on, on story games, where he's talked about games that he's run involving uh, the Queen, uh, My Life with the Headmaster, Santa, Tony Blair and Jesus. Hmm. Is, it, is it the Queen or just... Queen. Actually, yeah. I mean, he didn't put the Queen in there, so maybe, maybe, you know, maybe you are all subservient to Freddie Mercury in it. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, it could be. That actually <laughs> sounds more more fun to me. But so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, having to like, you know, perm Brian May's hair or yeah, yeah. wax Freddie Mercury's moustache. Yeah, and then. Um, Tor Nielsen jumped into the discussion saying that uh, yeah, he'd heard the suggestion of my life with Darwin. The players would be the poor crew of the Beagle, sent out to kill all the finches. What's the matter with finches? Well, Dar- that was one of the things Darwin yeah. collected for his um, yeah. sort of uh, scientific research. Yeah, because he was looking at the ways that finch populations had adapted themselves to particular islands in the Galapagos. The certain ones had different beak shapes because they fed on different nuts and berries and so on. And he was looking at the way that each one had developed in isolation to to fit their environment. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I don't think he had the objective of killing them off, but, you know. I was going to say, I like finches. Yeah, they're very tasty. Aww. Now, Lee Williams' comments about finding a name, uh, this, is, this is a common problem, I think, for role players. As they sit at the table, they've gone through all the numbers, rolled dice, looked at charts, picked advantages, disadvantages, and all that malarkey. 
and then it comes down to picking a name. This is one of the things Apocalypse World does tend to do quite well, mm. is they have a, a list of sample names on the various uh, character kind of play sheets. Um, Lee comments that it's nice to hear um, that somebody else has a problem with uh, finding character names, you know, picking them as, as hard as he does. You've got a big book, haven't you? You two guys have got a big yeah. book that you use for this. Yes, the, the, the Writer's Digest book of character names. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a really useful book. It it um, covers a variety of different cultures. Uh, you know, it's got you know, sort of nationality or culture in alphabetical order. And you can just flick through it and it's got it broken down by uh, family name, uh, male first name, male, uh, sorry, female first name. And um, where there are certain, you know, not peculiarities, but differences in the way that names are structured uh, in terms of what goes first or whether there's a patronymic name inserted in there it explains all that and also the origin of the name as well so it's got a bit it's more like a um, book form of behind the name.com that has uh, again the origins and meanings of names which can be quite helpful whereas my trick when i instead of flicking through the books i keep oh, finding well, sure, Matt. Go on. well i have as uh, a few pictures will show a fairly large collection of fiction um, at home a wall of paperbacks I just turn around and I take the first name of one author and put it on the surname of another done <laughs> ah <laughs> yeah I, I yeah, another to... Howard Brown yeah <laughs> <laughs> I used to use all sorts of methods for coming up. Well, any time I go to the gaming table to run a game, I always have lists of names prepared, and I try to find ones that are so suitable for the particular culture that NPCs are going to come from, and also make these lists of of names available to the players so that if they're stuck for names, they can choose one off the list, and. I've used all sorts of things for that. I remember when I used to work for a large multinational company, I used to go through the uh, the, the exchange email directory and just find people's names off there because we had offices all around the world. Pick names and, and you know, it was generally mix and match and you know choose someone's first name and someone else's mm. last name and stuff like that. Whereas for fantasy games, my tip, the IKEA catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> I fondly remember my character, Ulrich Stahl. Who was, uh, you know, the name of these kind of wibbly wobbly oak fronted uh, bits that I had on my kitchen cabinets? But I thought Old Rick Style was a pretty cool name. Yeah, and and you know, the person who carries all the equipment for everyone else is obviously called Ivar. Yeah, or <laughs> the uh, repository of knowledge, Billy. Yeah. Another comment we had from Abstract Machine. Like Paul, I found the formulae a bit difficult to visualise in play. Unlike Paul, I find the conflation of terror and humour very appropriate. Matt, this is always weird about talking about yourself. Matt seems very gleeful about a game he professes to dislike. Yay, I do, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a habit you pick up at work where you just have to smile all the time and say, yeah, this is a really good thing I'm doing, yeah. And and also, never let the fact that you don't like something stop you from liking it. (laughs) (laughs) You must enjoy everything you hate. (laughs) And as always, you can join in with the discussion... We have a presence on Google+, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, You can find us by searching for the good friends of Jackson Elias. And also we have our blog, blasphemoustomes.com. And there is a contact form on the, the blog. If you use that, it sends us email. And to round off, what are our final thoughts about H.P. Lovecraft? And three of us between us have have been 
Call of Cthulhu players for you know, decades combined. We've you know written an awful lot of material uh, for the game and other associated games. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we have built large parts of our lives around Lovecraft. Oh, yes. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why? I mean, obviously, apart from for the money. (laughs) (laughs) And the girls. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what this episode's been all about. What is the appeal of H.P. Lovecraft? And if we haven't answered it yet, I'm not going to be able to answer it now, Scott. You know, my, my kids grew up with a sort of two foot by three foot picture of H.P. Lovecraft on the living room wall. Well, just assuming everyone's house had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As they got older, they're like, Dad, other people don't have that. Right, yeah, never mind. Um, you know, we all like different things. Yeah. I think it's whatever I liked, I would like to think that I would get into it because what's the alternative? But, I mean, the alternative, you know, is is getting into football, getting into, you know, something else that sort of takes up your life. Or you don't have that. And I suppose, fundamentally, if we're going to embrace Lovecraft's nihilism, it doesn't matter anyway. Humanity yeah, is a little blip in the cosmos in terms of time and space. Nothing we do as a race matters, let alone what we do as individuals. So, yeah, why not? Why the hell not? I have that same thought every time I look up at the night sky, to be honest. I think, mm. what the hell is the point? Oh, the fucking point. But anyway, on a more happy note, um, the reason for me is that, as I said, it's a massive jigsaw puzzle where there are blatant holes and deliberate holes, I'd say, left for you to fill in. And I love filling them in. I love create, um, adding to that shared universe. And I love expressing, uh, giving a, a channel for my creativity in that fashion. Well, one last question then to wrap things up. I, based on everything we've said and all, you know, all the stuff that we've, we've read uh, and, and heard over time, if we were to meet Lovecraft today and, you know, shaking off the fact that he's been dead for 80 years, so that would be a bit weird, do we think that we'd actually like him as a person? The first hurdle would be how I'm going to meet him. Yeah, because, but, but, but assuming that... No, 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 because that, that was actually going to be part of my answer. Was the best way I think we're ever going to meet him, rather than talking to a corpse, is to go physically go back in time and have a chat with him in the context of his environment. I wouldn't be so much interested in the person, mainly because, again, I wouldn't, know him, I wouldn't know if I'd like him until I'd met him. But I'd be more interested in going along to those... If I had a choice to go back in time to those moments would be, go back and save those bloody letters from being burnt. <laughs> Grab them off the desk, put them off his sideboard in hospital. Make sure they're preserved. <laughs> that, that admittedly, would be the more central focus of my, my visit. <laughs> uh, how about you, Paul? Reading about him, in his teenage years, he used to go out at night with his telescope and gaze up at the night sky. And there was a comment there by a young girl, a contemporary, I think, classmate or whatever, that went over and talked to him. And she kind of came away recounting that, well, I tried to talk to Howard, but he started talking about astronomy and I didn't really know what he was on about. (laughs) And I fear that, you know, if I did sit down and chat to him, that his frames of reference would be so elevated and um, his, his mode of speech yeah, it might be quite difficult for me to get on with him. Behind that, I think, I don't know. I, I have the impression that I'd like to have a, you know, be able to sit down, go back in time and, you know, sit down in one of those New York cafes where he'd have his meetings with uh, with the his Caitlin with his Club. clique of friends. 
Yeah. And indeed, I can kind of see that they, they would get together and they would do readings from fiction to each other. Mm. You know, if there were role-playing games there, you know, I'd take a copy of Call of Cthulhu and sort of sneak it <laughs> onto the table and introduce it to them all. And, you know, we could uh, we could have a game. That'd be great. <laughs> what about you, Scott? Do you think you'd uh, warm to him? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's an awful lot of things that that Lovecraft believed that I find personally quite repellent. I, I, I was reading an account the other day. Bobby Deary posted something on Reddit uh, where so, someone had asked the question, you know, what was Lovecraft actually like as a person? Are there any contemporary accounts? And, and Bobby Deary, who's written books about Lovecraft before, uh, found an excerpt from... Uh, it wasn't one of the letters. It was a journal that a friend of Lovecraft's had written um, about a visit that Lovecraft made down to Louisiana. And talking about how he'd been perhaps a bit concerned because, you know, he, he wasn't quite sure how sociable you know, Lovecraft would be in a large environment. But he said that he had an open house that weekend and people came and went and and that most of the time Lovecraft was you know, almost holding court, that he was very mm, gregarious. Exactly that, yeah. So of telling stories to people and you know people were just sort of sitting around in rapt fascination and he seemed to be intensely charismatic in that circumstance and so yeah i think on a personal level i i i, I probably would quite like him ultimately who knows well that wraps the show up it's a 100th goodbye from me it's a centuried cheerio from me and it's a five score farewell from me Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.